Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. I am a married man of many years and have only betrayed my wife with men and gay porn. How do you distinguish between sex addiction and sexual orientation, childhood trauma issues? I've wondered if my acting out in extramarital relationships is just my fulfillment of who I am versus addiction. That's a profound question. Well, there's a lot there. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try to be very, very cautious. Number one. When I have guys in treatment and we look at this question, Mike, one of my questions is, how many women have you had sex with? How many men have you had sex with? You know, if I've had sex with 50 women and 50 men, or I've had sex with, you know, 15 or 10 meaningful relationships with women, or I've sexually acted out with women, um, you know, then I would say, okay, so you do both. But if you've been with, you know, 50, 70 men and only two or three women, I would say walks like a duck, acts like a duck, it's probably a duck. Does it mean you're gay? No, gay is the way you live. I am gay. I am married to a man. Everyone in my life knows it. You may be homosexual and in the closet, but that's very different than being out. Um, Sexual orientation is defined before birth. All of the research, including, uh, well, including my own experience, will tell you that we know by seven or eight, most of us, that we're different. I remember looking at my Oh my God, my elementary school gym teacher was like, oh, Dom Pellegrini on there. He had this big black mustache. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. Um, but in any case, I mean, it was, it was like a crush, you know, it wasn't even sexual. I wasn't even old enough, but I had a crush on the male gym teacher. That's how, so I knew, and most of us know, if you look at the research by seven or eight. So what it, I have very, very rarely seen uh, a compulsion to be sexual with a, a man by a man uh, simply come out of a fetish. I have seen some people who, who claim, and I really don't know, and I'm not sure what the research is, that since they were abused by people with penises, that they have some kind of odd attraction to penises. But generally, that's very specific. Like They don't want to be with the man. They don't want to see the person. They don't want to talk to them. They just have a focus on that. And, uh, but I think, again, this is stuff that is very complicated. This is why we run a treatment center. I'm just going to give a plug for this. These, I have men who are seeking integrity that come in all the time and they have these questions. And, you know, I can't definitively define whether what you are, you know, there's a lot of testing that we've gone and their life experiences, but I think that we can get pretty down and we do get pretty down to asking you the right questions for you to make your own decisions. And by the way, I would make a profound distinguish, I would profoundly distinguish sex addiction from sexual orientation. And I'll tell my own story, if you don't mind. I was a raging sex addict. I mean, you know, many people a week for a long, long time. And I ruined a relationship as a result of it, ruined it. And so I moved out to California, separated from this person thinking, oh, okay, now that I'm single, now I will have more freedom. I won't be, I'll date lots of people. I won't be as, feel as much of a compulsion to be sexual with all those people, because now, you know, I'm going to enjoy my life more. I'm not tied to this awful person, whatever it was. And I moved out to California and all of a sudden I was acting out more because I didn't have any structure. I didn't have anyone to report to or come home to. And I was still interested in men. And why I say this to you is I did not realize until probably a year of being here by myself that the problem was not being gay 
or homosexual. The problem was, is I had conflated those issues and thought, well, when I'm an out gay man and when I'm living my life every way I want to, then I won't be compulsive anymore. And the truth is I was both. I had a problem with sex addiction and I was a gay man. And it took a long time to figure out that the two were separate. It's like those of you who have fetishes or kink and you're into that and you think, oh, well, I hate myself because I'm into panties. And so that means, you know, that must be sex addiction. No, your interest in panties is over here and sex addiction is over there. Now, you may have played out your interest over here in the addiction. In any case, um, I think it involves more information. Um, I do do consultations on questions like this. I'll tell you what um, that Tammy can organize. I'll tell you, though, what I, I spoke to a wife. I'll just give you this brief, brief moment. I saw a couple actually online in consultation, and it's not therapy. I consult to try to clarify issues and tell people sort of the next steps. And I was talking to this couple that had been together 50 years. And his wife knew that he'd been doing this with men and that with men and this with men. And they'd been to six therapists and all six therapists bought the line that, oh, it's trauma. Oh, you used to work on this, work on that. Because he absolutely did not want to be homosexual. And I listened to them for an hour because I'm very direct and very clear. And I, yes, you, in case you haven't gotten that. And I turned to her and I said, well, I turned to him and I said, have you ever slept with anyone other your wife? He said, well, maybe other one other woman in college. And I said, how many men have you been sexual with? And he said, like 300. And I said, you're queer. You know? I said to his wife, question answered. Your husband's a homosexual. But my point of that is what she said to me, which is, you know, I have been wanting to know the answer to that question for 50 years. And if someone had just told me, I could have lived with it. We could have had an open marriage. We could have worked out all kinds of things. But instead, I've gone from therapy to therapy to therapy following him because he did not want to own what was true for him. Now, they've been married 60 years. They're not going to separate. But I can tell you the relief on her face when I just said, yes, blue is blue and green is green. And they line up to make what do blue and green make? I don't know. Blue brown. Green? Yeah, no, blue green. Blue green. But you know, no. my point is that sometimes my job is to just say, this is what this is. And then people can move. And uh, yeah, it's a great question to ask. I think you need uh, a professional who knows what they're doing, who's not going to go along with oh, well, I only want to do this and I only that. I mean, they will play into that with you and you'll be lost forever. So treatment is a good option for you. Asking for a referral is a good option for you. But this is a complex issue for sure. Okay, next question. Is sexual addiction cycle, what kinds of tools can we use to avoid going from trigger to fantasy? How about fantasy to ritualization? Okay, so we are going to be triggered. And what that means is I'm going to see a billboard. I'm going to walk through a certain part of town. I'm going to be online looking at something. And all of a sudden, I feel like I don't know why. And you don't have, I, I know why, but you don't have to know why. I feel like I want to go have sex with a sex worker. Or all of a sudden, I want to move into porn. So the trigger is of whatever it is. And you can't control the trigger. You know, um, for an alcoholic, it might be walking by a bar. It might be seeing someone sip you know, a glass of wine at that same time that they were always having a glass. I mean, you, you never know what your personal trigger is. So you cannot avoid going into fantasy. It's just going to happen. What you can do is say, okay, look at this. I'm thinking about sex workers. I'm thinking about, you have to be able to observe yourself enough to understand that your desire to have sex with strangers is not about sex. And this is something we all, you know, so many people are like, I just like sex. I'm over sex. I like a lot of sex. This is not about sex. This is about escape. So if you can get into your head, and this takes a lot of work, when you hear yourself saying, I really want to go see that sex worker. I really want to go call that ex. When you get triggered, what you need to do is call someone who you trust, who is healing or a therapist or in a support group and say, I think I'm in trouble because I'm thinking about this. 
and they will help you because you yourself, as we say, we're powerless. I can't help myself in the moment, but if I'm connecting to another human being who is not in my own craziness, they can talk me out of it. And by the way, the real thing we want to act over, the real thing, I'll give it to you, is connection. We feel so disconnected from the people we're even supposed to be connected with. And when something comes up, we race to, uh, to a quick escape. Um, I'll give you one more answer to this. I'm so full of answers today. I made an agreement with my sponsor and I kept it. The person who I relied on in 12-step programs to be the person who was my guide and my role model. And they said, I do not want you to have sex unless you call me first. And that meant with my spouse, with myself, all of it. And I thought, do I want to embarrass myself by calling this person or do I want to get well? And I decided to call them. And you know what? I had a lot of sobriety around that because I was no longer alone with it. And I didn't look left to my own devices. I can give myself permission to do a whole bunch of things. But if I have to rely on someone else who is not crazy, like I am to give me feedback and guide me and I'm willing to take it, that's how I can find my way out. You can't escape the fantasy, but what do you do with it? Is the, this is the question. Great answer. Okay. Next question. My hey, Tammy, essay, wait a minute. Yeah. Am I leaving you out? Cause no, I'm giving no, no. all these long he, answers no, and I it, feel like I'm leaving you I, out. I, uh, like, I just want to say, yay, that was, that was a great answer. So, okay. okay well, you have to answer the next feel, one first. No, no, no. I'm feeling, I'm not feeling left out. We're all good. We're all good. So, okay. okay. My essay wants to leave me and he is in extreme denial about his addiction and issues. Does it mean that I am unhealthy if I still want to help nudge him to get help therapy conversations, et cetera. I spent thousands of hours and dollars mm. helping myself through the trauma and will never stop working on myself, but I feel scared for him and his future as well. Mm. Well, I don't know about nudging. I'm not sure what nudging means. I think, well, actually, I'm going to stop. Full stop. Tammy, what are your thoughts about this question? So what I hear is the person is not responding to the desire to get help. He's choosing to leave. You did not. Or she. Yes. Or she. Yes. He or she. Yeah. The essay is choosing to leave. You did not. Oh, he. So, Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So he is. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm so confused. Okay. I'm sorry. I always like to make sure that women are included because we do see female sex addicts. So yes, I apologize either way. So but I, this one I says he, so I'll shut up. You are being very careful with yourself, therapy, et cetera. Um, and you've done a lot of work on yourself and you don't want to stop doing work on yourself. But at some point, if the essay is leaving, that's like, that's the, you know, that is what it is. So you can always hope, you know, good things, you know, I have an ex-husband. I still hope good things happen for him. I'm really glad I'm out with him, but I, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but I still hope good things for him. You know, I, you know, at some point I like, I just don't need the resentment and everything else. And you care, you clearly you've invested heavily in this person, you know, so of course you care and, you know, whether you're together or not, you still want them to be, um, you know, healthy, you know? So, but at this point I would, I would look at it as just focus on you and how can you move through. You're going to grieve the loss of what you hoped for with him, what he could have been, all of those things. So get support around those issues for you as well. Glad you're here. So that's my thoughts. And I want to support Tammy. And she said the most beautiful thing I have all here, which is to me, the question is, is, is it unhealthy if I want to help them? And first of all, if you read the book, I hate to say this, this book I wrote called Pro-Dependence. Um, I think it's very healthy when you love someone to want them to be better. 
And I think it's very healthy to long for and hope for that you can rejoin the connection you once had. I think that's very healthy. And that's why I wrote that book. I don't think that you should pick yourself apart because you love a troubled person or you stayed with a pro, you know, this, you love who you love and that's fine. Um, and I really admire, as Tammy said, the fact that you spent so much time healing yourself, you wouldn't be able to see what this is between you and this person had you not. You could be pulled in for a long time with a lot of BS had you not really been able to see yourself so clearly. But um, I'll say one more thing. You have no idea why this person wants to leave you. Uh, I work with many men who have a girlfriend here and an affair over there. And, they, and, and the moment you start to bring up difficult things that they don't want to deal with, they're running into the arms of another person. Um, so I wouldn't just assume it's denial. I would also, I would assume as a, doing what I do for a living, cause I don't trust any of the guys I work with unless they're in an active process of healing. I would just assume that he, this gave him an opportunity to push you away and make you feel bad for, mm. if you hadn't said this to him, he could have stayed right. If you hadn't pushed this agenda, things would be better. Uh, I'm not sure this is denial. I think this is a deliberate shove away from you and he's going to pay the price for that. You know, he's going to pay the price for that. So but anyway, that's my you have an opportunity to heal and be in a relationship at some point. If you ever want one, you know, with somebody who can be a true partner with you, you know, side by side, you know, against the world. So, okay. Next question. No, with the world, we're not against the world. Not well, yeah, you're right with the world, but yeah. And like, I always think of what Dr. Stan Tatkin talks about is like the two of us united, you know, to, you know, to deal, shelter like, ourselves. Yeah. Well, like yeah. Think about with COVID that, you know, it, I mean, it's really helpful to have had somebody in the, you know, in the trenches together. So, okay. Can I just say something briefly to you about that, Tammy, because someone brought this up with, I saw a notice on, well, everything I think is hopefully germane. So I'm not trying to just tell stories, but I was looking, someone wrote something on Facebook uh, on a therapist Facebook list recently. And they, the question they asked all these therapists was, what did you learn from having all this time dealing with COVID? And, you know, some people wrote, well, I learned to knit, or some people wrote, I learned to work on Zoom, or some people, and I wrote, because this is the best thing of all, I learned that I have a happy marriage. Hmm. Because all of this time of being together, and now granted, we argue about why didn't you close the cabinet, or why did you shove in the chair, because our world is very small. But you don't get through this kind of experience unless you deeply and are able to love each other and, or at least tolerate. So that was my big lesson. This whole experience was how wonderful my relationship really is. Um, anyway, I want to say that Tammy, just because it makes no, me feel that, good. No, that, and that's really important. And what I hear in that is gratitude. And I, 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 you know, I've shared on webinars before I've had to lean into the very things I learned early in recovery. And one of them was making a gratitude list every day. And I've had to be grateful and remember, I have choices, even if they're smaller, but yeah. And the people, the people around me that I'm connected to in even a Zoom way are the meaningful parts of it. So, okay, next question. Would an ongoing mother-son enmeshment impact the recovery of a sex addict? Yes. He has been sober from alcohol and substances for about three years, but just in case he relapses, there is an agreement for her to manage his finances. Uh, I'm not sure about the second question. I'm sure I understand it, but. Why don't we talk about the first one first? Why don't you yes. have Tim? I know you have a lot of understanding of this one. I do. So, um, uh, so Dr. Ken Adams did a podcast with Dr. Rob um, on the Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast series, which you can find on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. But, um, and it talks about um, overcoming enmeshment um, uh, when he's married to mom. 
uh, Silently Seduced. Both of those are Dr. Ken Adams' books, and it is the number one podcast on that entire series. So there's lots of people that have struggled with that. But yeah, it's, oops, you took away my- um, I'm sorry, go to answer it. I answered no, that question. I wrote them in it. That's fine. So, um, but many people, you know, Dr. Ken Adams does some weekend uh, intensives for people that kind of get stuck in that spot where it's a betrayal if they disentangle from a, a parent. And so then they keep relapsing because it's just like Dr. Rob was talking about, like those, those relationship issues, those are the uncomfortable, unpleasant things. And when there's so much demanded by a demanding parent, you know, then anything else is a betrayal to that relationship. So it can be very um, difficult, but getting some tools to use and understanding that it can be different and setting boundaries, you know, has been transformative for many, many people. So that's my, okay. Anything on that? Well, just that almost every man that I work with has had some form of either neglect by uh, profound neglect, or as Tammy said, kind of enmeshment. And here's the message that we give when we're like that, because for me and for a lot of the men I work with, I'll take it either way to move towards someone who might abandon me is terrifying because I grew up being neglected and abandoned. Uh, that's at one end of the spectrum, but the other end of the spectrum is, and this is my experience. My mom was so overwhelming. Her needs were so huge. She was so troubled that I always came second. And therefore, she, and she would ask me, what do you think of your dad? I don't like having sex with your dad. How do you like these panties that I'm wearing? I mean, there was no overt incest, but there was on every level being pulled into her world like I was some kind of girlfriend or whatever. And what that meant was, is I learned that everyone else comes first and I come second. I just need to figure out what they need in order to be what I need. But we grew up with big emptiness inside. So yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Ken Adams' work is the work here, and he does workshops in Michigan, I think, and maybe online. Now online too. now, he he actually successfully translated some to online. So yeah, check it out. Overcomingenmeshment.com is his website. So okay, next question. This is a great question from somebody early in recovery. Do you find that when you are in withdrawal, you can feel very irritable and crabby and angry? No. Yes. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. No. Of course, um, everything that you know has been taken away, so so to speak. So, you know, and you're supposed to choose differently and you have no tools to be able to use it to deal with all those uncomfortable things that you're looking to use, it, you know, the reasons you were using in the first place. So, of course, you know, it's overwhelming and I hear you. And so, yeah, yes, just know that that's normal. And, you know, people say, oh, it's, you can only withdraw from chemicals. That's not true. It's like, yeah, it's. It really is. You know, it's dopamine. Dr. David, go online on Wednesday night. He talks about dopamine and all that. And if you're trying to simmer all that stuff down, you know, it's, you know, there's a, there's a drop. So other thoughts. And I want to, I want to just tack on what I said earlier was it, it gets worse before it gets better because I, my primary coping mechanism was attracting strangers to me so that I could feel better about myself. That was the way I felt better about myself. That was the way I escaped feeling uncomfortable, whether I was fighting or money, whatever it was. And now I've got to deal with, as we say in recovery, life on life's terms. I don't have a place to squiggle and escape and look at porn for three hours and then I'm just distracted. Or then I hate myself about that rather than the financial, you know. Uh, so um, yes, we are, have taken away a strut that our whole life leaned on. Unfortunately, it was destroying our life and that has to be replaced, but it isn't replaced right away because the things that we replace it with are more drip by drip things. They're not, I go in intensity, I disappear. It's, I have a good friend. I go to a support group. 
Um, I, ha- I go out and have some fun playing tennis. You know, I played with my kid. Those aren't things that are as exciting and intense as acting out, but life should be a drip, drip, drip of fun things, not a waterfall, you know? So yes, in the beginning, it's very, very difficult. And the best way to, uh, two ways to get through that. <laughs> One is get as much support as you can, go to as many groups as you can, raise your hand and say, I am so miserable. I hate this process. I hate all of you. Just get it all out. The other thing is, and I have to say this because it's true. One of my sponsors said, you know, the way I got this first six months of recovery, I watched movies. (laughs) She sat there and just distracted herself for enough time to look when I feel crabby and irritable, I I might go watch a show and then I feel better. You know, there's nothing wrong with healthy distractions. You know, it is also a way that we, that's a way healthy people cope. So there's nothing wrong. It doesn't all have to be journaling and, you know, it can also be just finding something fun to distract you. But yes, from feeling bad. And yes, this is to be expected. And this too shall pass. And I go for a walk and have to pay attention to something outside. Or I, I have a dog, so I can also go pet my puppy. So, but yeah. Well, and we call that a walking meditation. When there you have you to think to yourself and observe things and you get out of yourself. Okay, so next question. I'm an SA and have two years sobriety. My relationship with my spouse is very strained, of course, and my lack of empathy and feelings of shame and guilt don't help or heal. I've lied, manipulated to her, hide my acting out. We've been separated for a year and a half. We do talk several times a week, and we've even had a consult with you last week. I want us to work things out, and so does she. However, you told her to shit or get off the pot. So can I learn empathy in your treatment, or would it be, I assume, a waste? Okay, so um, I was always useful to learn about empathy. Um, uh, and I don't know why your spouse is blaming you at a year and a half. It could be that you're not doing this, or you're not doing that, or they're fi- still finding out things about you. But if you're really very committed to the recovery process um, and really doing well, and you're being more honest and more real and more present, you know, we're not perfect, but they can feel that. I will say this to you spouses, that I would say to this spouse, as I've said to many spouses, there comes a certain point. And by the way, empathy, compassion, yes, you can work on it. You can do that. But you've been separated for a year and a half. So it's a lot. I'm sure there were moments when you were empathic. I'm sure there were moments when you were kind. I'm sure your moments when you reflected on you hurt them. So I doubt that you're just black and white. Empathy isn't black and white. Um, however, what I've said to spouses who are still sort of at the same level of hurt and anger and disappointment a year in or a year and a half in. Now I am all for spouses. And that person who said three and a half months, no, it's more like nine months to a year before you can expect your spouse to really back down from their anger and disappointment and betrayal. But at a year and a half, what I often say to spouses is sometimes your anger can be counterproductive to your relationship. Meaning, you know, furious, angry for six months, beginning to come to turns at eight months, working on this in couples therapy, even though we hate each other at 10 months or whatever it is. By a year, we pretty much figure whether we're going to go forward or not. When you can start getting on a year and a half and your spouse is doing this, I want to talk to you a few times a week, but you can't get any closer to me. Then I think it's not about her at all. I think it's about you. You are getting better. You are feeling, as you should, more of what you need because you used to get our needs met out there in the addiction. Now you're more needful. You want to turn to your spouse to get those needs met, and she does not want to do that for you. Is that what you want? You know, how long, if you're doing your best in recovery, you know, is there a certain point at which you say, you know, maybe I shouldn't focus so much on this relationship working out because I don't see my partner moving any, and maybe I need to focus my life on what might come next. And boy, you'd be surprised when you stop being the person who's trying to make it work and you start to focus on your life, that will tell the tale. 
because either your partner will come racing towards you. And I'm talking about go find a girlfriend. I mean, just simply say to them, you know, I think I'm going to stop pursuing our relationship because I don't see this. I'm tired of looking at the glass half full and I really need to look at it as half empty so that I can move on. And they will either respond by moving towards you or you'll know where it's at, but it will only be by you doing what is best for you in these circumstances that you're going to know what to do, not by you're trying to accommodate and accommodate, accommodate, unless you're still acting out, which is a whole different story. But all the empathy in the world is not going to get back to your spouse has been apart from you a year and a half. Okay. Next question. I'm wondering why you spent your post Atlanta statements disowning the, wait, I'm wondering why you spent your post Atlanta statements disowning the suspect as a sex addict and buying into racism narrative. Mm -hmm. Okay. I never said that. So I never said that. I I didn't hear any of that. Yeah. Didn't even mention that. So, and I don't want to talk about this. I've already talked about it. I have 25 years experience in the field. I think he's a sex addict or not. And he's a crazy person and crazy Trump sex addict. He could have said, I'm an alcoholic and I'm sick and I kill people. I'm a gambler and I'm, it doesn't matter. He kills people. That comes first. But I don't think, you know, I'm not going to speak on the issues that I'm not an expert in. So I'm not going to talk about race and gender in America. I'm not going to talk. I don't know anything about this guy or why, what his motivations were. And the, the, you never know what the press says. One thing they said another. So, you know, all I know for sure is that sex addicts who are doing their best, best or their worst work don't kill people. They hurt people. They let them down at the worst. Some of them abuse emotionally or even physically their partners in a moment of, you know, ah, but um, you have to understand to sexually act out or drink or use or gamble when you are angry or upset or disappointed is passive. I'm not coming to you and saying, I'm angry about this and I don't like this and blah, blah, blah. What I'm doing is saying, I'm having all these feelings and I don't, I'm not going to show them all to you. I'm just going to disappear into this. So I would say most sex addicts struggle with being assertive. We actually, we can take things, but actually asking for them and negotiating, not our best skill set. So no, I don't think, I don't want to answer any further, but that uh, the issues of the separation between an addiction and someone who is a violent criminal couldn't be more clear in my mind. We, and, and well, wait, wait, oh, sorry, Tammy. Go ahead. We had a podcast. So Dr. Stephanie Carnes and I did a podcast on this subject, which will be out, I think, tomorrow. So I don't know what our latest is like, number 89 or 93. or. But if you see Dr. Stephanie Carnes, she and I had a conversation uh, last Friday after all this happened about our sex addicts violent. And what does this mean? And how do these things tie together and all of that? And Sex, Love, and Addiction is the name of the podcast. I'm selling you nothing. We make nothing for podcasts, but 850,000 people have downloaded it, more or less. So Tammy will say 750, I'll say 850, you know, we're, we're along that. Um, but there is a great discussion in the most late, most current episode, which I don't think will be out till Tuesday or Wednesday, about uh, this whole issue. And, and she and I, we're good friends, and we, we have a lot to say. Okay, next question. Tammy, this is the last question. Okay. But I want to say this to you guys. We answered 21 questions. 21 and we only left two so i forget well we're we're hopefully we're i'm going to talk hi rob and tammy Uh, my husband has identified as a sex and love addict for around two years now we've been married for two and a half years and together for nine years the most recent discovery was this past november when shortly after finding out we were pregnant with our first child i discovered extensive online sex and romantic interactions between my husband and two previous romantic partners. We were finally able to find a CSAT in our area and both have been doing individual therapy since January. My husband has ADHD and social anxiety disorder, has been attending his 
individual therapy weekly and started attending 12-step group weekly. He is very enthusiastic in the first weeks of therapy, and he has been um, wanting help for this issue for some time now. His mood and communication improved greatly, but now the honeymoon phase seems to be wearing off, and he is finding himself emotionally and mentally exhausted by the recovery work. He doesn't want to give up, but I worry his motivation is waning. Do you have any recommendations for dealing with this kind of slump? What can I do? as his wife to encourage him, hold him accountable in an appropriate way without having him feel like I'm taking control of his recovery. I feel like his intimacy issues often leave me in the dark as to how, as how far I can help uh, be supportive of him. Okay, I wrote a couple of things down. Um, one is holding things, holding him, holding him accountable. It's not your job to hold him accountable. It's my job to hold myself accountable and be accountable to you. So as Akami said, when people go through treatment, one of the things we, we do is we, we make a schedule with them for a week. And we say Monday, this group and Tuesday, that group and Wednesday, this therapy, you know, and we make sure that the week is filled up with stuff. And I don't expect the spouse to say, hey, what are you doing today? This is why what I mean. We tell the guys to put that up on the fridge and say, if you have any questions about when I'm doing what I'm doing for recovery, here it is. So I have made myself accountable to you. As far as waning uh, interest, uh, my word, my comment would be welcome to recovery. Just like the person said earlier, it's not a honeymoon. It's more like a long, long road. It's kind of bumpy. And the honeymoon is true. We often get into this place of, uh, oh, I found the answer. And, oh, they're not as angry at me anymore. And, oh, I know what to do. And, you know, we get this excitement and hope. And then we realize what it actually means. And we get depressed because we think, oh, my God, this road is so long. I would not get confused feeling irritable and angry and unhappy and struggling and not wanting to look at this with not moving forward. You know, if the person has stopped going to meetings, stopped getting support, stopped getting therapy, that's a problem. But if they're still trudging forward and feeling miserable, I would say good for them because it gets worse before it gets better. I also would say this last thing. I, I have a resentment in this, in this particular. I think that um, I wish that you didn't know that he was exhausted mentally and physically by this work. I wish you didn't know that because what that tells to me is I, you're hearing a little bit, well, you know, this is hard for me and I feel exhausted. And boy, is that not your problem? <laughs> That's his problem. If he's exhausted, he can get more rest. If he's feeling depleted, he can go for a walk or to get some therapy or this is not your problem. Um, and what I worry about is, is addicts who, as you said, their, their excitement is waning. The bloom is off the rose. And instead of actually, uh, instead of being able to face that and say, I don't like this, I don't want to do this, they turn to you and start whining. And that whining produces for them in their mind some form of empathy from you, which is, oh, that must be exactly what this is. Well, so here's how I read this, with all due respect. Poor baby, he's having a really hard time. I mean, this recovery thing, it's difficult. And I love him a lot, and I hate to see him in pain, even though he's completely ruined my life. You're not his mother. You know, it's not how he's feeling at this point is not your responsibility. That's what therapists are for. That's what 12 street meetings are for. Um, he has a lot of support. Let me try it this way. The job of couples in the early stages, like the first six months is not to turn toward each other. You don't trust him. All he wants is forgiveness. You have to turn to outside sources for your support. When he's miserable, he needs to go to his 12-step program. He needs to go to a meeting so he can come home to you with a smile on his face because you deserve that person to have cleaned up their stuff, especially after what they put you through, and not still be complaining to you about what they actually should be doing. 
you know, if I had diabetes and I complained to you every time I had to take my blood and how would you feel about that? It's just something I have to do. What's the point of complaining about it? It's on this person to take responsibility for their feelings and not put them on you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.